the lure of passive real estate investing is huge. And as your real estate portfolio grows, the last thing you want to do is liquidate and then move it into stocks or equities, which are passive. Because when you do, all that benefit of the tax you've built up over the years. You're listening to The Life & Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey everyone, Annie Dickerson here together with the incredible Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I am fantastic, excited about the fall season and taking a trip back to California. And we're still in Hawaii, but excited to feel a little bit of the cold weather after being here for a while. (laughs) People on our team hunkering down in sweaters on our calls. And here we are, you're in Hawaii, I'm in California, and we're in our t-shirts and everything. We did have a cold snap here in the Bay Area over the last weekend, actually. Got out my sweaters, turned on my space heater, and I was like, oh, it's so cold. And today it's 80 degrees. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Typical October Bay Area weather. Love it. Are you guys doing anything for the Halloween trick-or-treating? Yeah. So I ordered every year. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be that mom. I'm going to create these great costumes, elaborate costumes for my kids. And we're going to get all the from from like not from Amazon, actual like really good costumes, not from Target. And every year it's like either the kids are not interested or they Uh wait too long. And so Uh this year, I think we're going to be Plants vs. Zombies, the different characters from Plants vs. Zombies. But Kai, our older one, wants to be a magician. So it'll be, it won't be fully themed, but. And do you, do you and Joe get dressed up too? We have in the past, last year I was Unicornicopia. Oh my so God, you corn, have to send me a picture. Why don't I see these things? I have no idea. Oh my God. Okay. After this, we got to send each other, send it over and back so the team can see. Cause yeah, I wasn't anything really fancy, but you'll laugh at mine and then that I share behind it. But this year I'm going to be Hedwig. We are all Potter. And so I found something really easy on Amazon and it's owl outfit. So I'm going to be Hedwig. Oh, Harry nice. Potter. I, like that. <laughs> I like that. I assume you'll have Harry Potter and Hermione and yep. the whole gang. Yeah. The whole gang. Yeah. <laughs> How fun. How fun. Well, let's segue then into our conversation with our guest today, Dave Foster. I've known Dave for quite a long time. He's a qualified intermediary and he's the founder of the 1031 Investor. And I first came across Dave back when I was doing my first 1031 exchange back in, gosh, I think it was 2017 when I was first getting into this whole real estate thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're holding all this equity. We got to trade up. We got to start doing these exchanges. I had no idea how to do it, but Dave (laughs) and his team are so incredible at just speaking in plain language and really helped me to grasp the concept of what an exchange was, why I would do it, the strategy behind it, as well as all of the guidelines and the rules, the time limits, how to create your list of the replacement properties, and then how the money moves hands. There's all these like things behind the scenes that happen. And if you do any part of it wrong, oh, the IRS is there to catch you. <laughs> so Dave is great. And in this episode, he talks about how he got into 1031 exchanges in the first place, how he and his family spent, I think, a, a, many years living on a boat 
which was their dream come true, and how they're helping people today with 1031 exchanges. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting. I've never actually done a 1031 myself. My family has done them for as long as I can remember, but I've never actually done one myself. And I think one of my biggest takeaways from the show today was really just talking about the strategies. So we talked about many different strategies, as you just mentioned, that which I realized makes the difference between one qualified intermediary and another. And it's like, if you don't work with the right one, it's kind of like life insurance policies. Like we've done a couple of shows on that, right? If you go down to your local like farmers or whatever and tell them that you want to do this infinite banking thing, they're going to just be like, yeah, of course, great, sure, I can do that for you. And they'll set up a policy that's all wrong for your strategy and your approach and what you're trying to accomplish. And you could end up with a life insurance policy that isn't going to do what you thought it was going to do. And similarly, with the 1031 exchange, there's so many rules and ways that you can sort of work the system, so to speak, to achieve whatever goal it is that you are trying to achieve. So it's the key takeaway for me was that when you go into having a conversation with somebody in the 1031 space, make sure that you have your strategy and your approach laid out for the qualified intermediary so that they know how to properly help you. And then subsequently, depending, pay attention to the responses that they give you, right? If they're not giving you answers that sound like it's strategic and thoughtful, and they're just like, yeah, sure, we can do that for you. You might want to rethink who you're working with. But Dave has been doing, what did he say, like over 20 years now? He's been qualified intermediary. It was really funny to hear the story in the background of why he got into this and then how he discovered his place in the real estate world, as we all have <laughs> over kind of like, oh my God, the, you have a light bulb moment. Like, this is what I'm going to do. And for everybody out there who is thinking of maybe selling a rental property and getting into a syndication, we get this question all the time. And it's one that Dave walks through in the show. And he walks through actually a few different options. And one of which was really good that I had never even heard of. And so for all of you listening, definitely stick around all the way through the episode because there's some really powerful strategies that he talks about in this episode. But for any of our listeners who might be new to the world of real estate syndications, we know it can be overwhelming and daunting with all the resources out there. So we've put together a great resource for you. It's our book. It's called Investing for Good. And we have a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodeginvestments.com slash book. All right. With that, let's dive into our conversation with Dave Foster. Dave, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, I am doing awesome. It is so good to be here today with you guys. We are so thrilled to have you here. Now, Dave, I believe you and I first met way back when I was first starting to get serious about this whole real estate investing thing. I remember at the time I had two duplexes in Washington, D.C., and I was ready to sell one of them and wanted to trade them out for some cash flowing small multifamily assets in Huntsville, Alabama. And prior to that, I had never done a 1031 exchange before, didn't know what an intermediary was or why I needed one, and didn't really understand the guidelines 
clients around doing a 1031 exchange, but that's where you came in. You have such tremendous experience in this area and you're always so giving of your time and your knowledge in an effort to help others, which is why we're so excited to chat with you and to share your story and your experience with our listeners. But before we dive into the specifics of 1031 exchanges, start by telling us a little bit about your story and how you got into this crazy world of 1031 exchanges in the first place. (laughs) It's one of those things where I call being two miles deep in a two foot wide creek. There's (laughs) nobody except for some really nerdy accountants and attorneys that do this kind of thing, but guilty as charged, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) As a matter of fact, as I remember when we first met, I was even able to gently tease you a little bit because (laughs) I came from the real bay. That's right. Of St. Pete, right. Tampa Bay. You guys were in the second second yes, place bay. That's right. I do remember that. Yeah. 1031 exchanges. It just kind of for those that the 15 second view for people that don't know anything about them, they allow you to sell investment real estate like yours and reposition into new investment real estate in a different location of a different type that's going to make you more cash flow. That's a better fit for you. And by doing that, you don't have to pay tax on the profits. You get to indefinitely use that money for your own portfolio. So basically, it's like the government saying, okay, you owe us some tax, but go ahead and use it for now. I like that. The problem was in 1996, I didn't know about it. And we were living in Denver, Colorado, and we were trying, our goal was to live on a sailboat. Now, how a girl from Minnesota and a guy from Kansas could meet in Denver and decide to go sailing, that's a whole nother story. But that's what we wanted to do. And we figured like so many people today, the best way to get that kind of independence was going to be through real estate investing. So ready, firing. I bought a duplex. I fixed it up and I sold it. It was awesome until I went to my accountant and he said, oh man, you are going to pay a bunch in taxes. I went, that does not seem right. I didn't realize that I had a silent partner named Uncle Sam. And he was going to make more money than I was. Well, that, like I said, that was 1996. And there was a major court case that had lasted for like 25 years that the IRS lost over this thing called a 1031 exchange. And I had some really good friends that laughed at me and then said, hey, come alongside. We're going to do these for people. And when I saw what it was going to allow us to do, I went, that's the answer to independence. Because the key in anything in life is compounding. Whether you're compounding your time, compounding your money, compounding your effort, it's all about getting things to work for you instead of you working hard. And revenue off of real estate income streams is one of those things. So we embarked from that date on a 10-year goal and managed to cast off our dock lines within one week of the 10-year goal to sail off on our sailboat with our four young boys. And we did it, well, three, one came later, without paying a penny in capital gains tax, with a tax-free boat, and with income coming in from our investments, real estate investments to pay for the trip. We were able to live on the boat for 12 years doing that. You had me at tax-free boat, Dave. Oh, man. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, so many people think I've got to pay taxes and then I'll take what's left. But there's this really cool hack where you can convert investment real estate into your primary residence. And then when you later sell, now you get to take a proration of that gain tax-free. When we started doing it, we got to take all of the gain tax-free. And then the IRS put my picture up in their lunchroom and I became a poster child and they changed the law. But every time we would do that, we would do 1031s, then later convert that into our primary residence, then later sell that and the money was tax-free. And that went into our buy the boat kitty. 
And that's how we got the boat tax free. So you did the duplex. What a gift, by the way, in a roundabout way that you had that experience where you had to pay all this tax and it created this pain point for you, right? And then that's why you knew when you discovered the 1031 exchange, you were like, this is it. This is the answer. So then you said you and your buddy or or somebody you knew said, let's do this for people, right? So take us from that point. How did you even learn about this thing? How did you figure out what role you were going to take and what happened next? Right. Well, section 1031 in the tax code is like three sentences. And in my entire accounting degree, I'm guilty. I'm one of the nerd accountants, but my entire undergraduate program, we talked about 1031 for one half of one class. So I learned nothing in college. I learned nothing going through the initial stages of accountancy. What I learned was from the attorneys, the finance guys and me getting together and pouring over about 10,000 pages of case law where it was all synthesized together. And there was a bunch of other really bright people doing that at the same time. We weren't the first by any means, but in doing that, it became very clear what the IRS was wanting people to do and what they were requiring. And one of the key requirements was that nobody can do this by themselves. They have to use the services of an unrelated third party called the qualified intermediary. And we have to document the exchange and we have to hold the proceeds. So, I mean, as we saw that, we said, holy cow, we can be everybody's buddy. We're Switzerland because we're completely neutral, but you can't do 1031s without us. So we're everybody's friend and we're to blame for nothing. So it was like the perfect job, right? So that was really kind of the impetus to get into it, as well as that pain point you talked about, because it was obvious. It's like, well, if I suffered that, there's a whole lot of other people going through the same thing. Mm-hmm. So for anybody who's listening, who may not be familiar with 1031 exchanges, take us through some of the lingo and the guidelines. I remember when I was first getting into this, you were like, you have 30 days to do this. You have six months to do this. And then there's a relinquished property and a replacement property. You taught me all the lingo. So give us a quick high level, yeah. sort of the 101 that people need to know. A lot of steps to it. And of course, because the IRS is not known for being so generous and forgiving, if you miss any one of these steps, your entire exchange fails because they have to let you do this. They lost the court case. They don't have to make it easy. So the 1031 exchange is only for investment real estate. Remember, we talked about if you went tax-free, turn it into your primary residence. So it's only for investment real estate. And you're absolutely right. From the day that you closed the sale of your old property, you had only 45 days to identify your potential new properties. So right away, it's like, you better be focused in shopping. Now, you guys, I in a couple cases, you guys even had your new properties already under contract. Yeah, we tried. Although I remember one of the first, if not the first that we did, we sold it because it was a duplex. And for the first time in 10 years, it was fully vacant. And we were like, this is a great time to sell. But it happened to be at a terrible time of the year. I think it was November when we sold. So our 45-day period ended in like mid-January. So we had this 45-day window over the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, we were trying to (sighs) scout out all these property. I still remember the day before that 45 day window expired. I was like, I don't have anything. Let me just like open up LoopNet 
Let's see. Let's throw a dart at the map. Okay. So let's look in the West. Let's look in the East. What's out there? But thankfully something came through, but that 45 day window, that's critical. That's It is pretty critical. And actually I've got a staff member who's just about their only job is answering those panic phone calls. Mm. (laughs) It's midnight tonight. What can I do? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's really tough, but you have to do that. Now you've got 180 total days to complete the purchase. That's not so bad, but the 45 days will kill you. So what we always recommend people, and you guys did a good job of adapting to this, is number one, understand the market and the timing. Number two, be laser focused. Already have your sector, your geography picked out. And if you can, get under contract for the new property first. Now, this was especially true when it was a seller's market, right? But just like everything, the market changes. So we got a whole ton of 1031 exchangers right now that are licking their chops because they sold at the peak. And now with the interest rates rising up, they're sitting there looking going, I can take a little bit of time and catch the falling market. That's the thing with the 1031. You just have to know where you're at. Take advantage of what it's going to give you. Can you tell us about a reverse 1031 exchange and what that is and how it might apply? Absolutely. So the statutory order, without even getting too far in the deep weeds, the statutory order of a 1031 is you have to close your sale before taking title to your new property. That does not change. But the reverse exchange makes it look like it does because it allows you to control your new property before your old property sells. And the way that that works is we form a holding entity and that holding entity takes title to your new property. So you don't own it yet, do you? We own it. And while we own it, you generate the income. If you want to improve it, you improve it, whatever. And within 180 days, then you have to complete the sale of your old property so you can then take title to the new property and finish your regular 1031. Reverse exchanges can be a great answer. They are fraught with a lot of difficulty and they're pretty complex. And for those of your listeners, watchers who are in California, the Franchise Tax Board does not like them at all. Of course, they don't really like much of anything at all, it seems, but they don't like reverse exchanges. So you got to be very, very, very careful. But that can be an answer where you find just the perfect property and you've got to take title, but you haven't sold your old properties. How many of your clients actually elect to do the reverse 1031? I would say less than one to 2%. Okay. So very few. And is that just because of the difficulties and the challenges or is there a cost component? It's actually both. It's the difficulties, the challenges, the complexity. A regular exchange for like any $1,000 property would cost you 950 bucks. Now that's noise level in terms of how much gain you're going to defer. A reverse exchange is going to add eight to $10,000 to that. So they do become a pretty significant factor in terms of how much it's going to cost. Okay. And many times you find out ultimately you really just don't need it because you can go to the seller and negotiate an extended closing date, especially in today's market, right? They're kind of a little scared they're going to sell. So you can walk in and say, hey, I'll give you a contract. I'll give you extra earnest money. I want an extra 90 days to close while I sell my old property. So there's a bunch of different ways to mitigate that without having to spend 10,000 bucks. Okay. So I want to go back to the 45 days because there was one exchange we did with you where we missed the 45 day window. So tell people what happens at that point. Do you get your money back right away? No, you don't. Or what happens on day 46? (laughs) You one of those unfortunate souls? See, I blocked that from my memory. That's a repressed memory. I can't believe you're bringing that back up. So (laughs) there is no penalty for starting and not completing an exchange. You're simply going to pay the tax. But- Because you cannot have 
actual or constructive receipt of the money. It can't be in your control. So we can only give you the money back at a couple of points in time when there is no longer the opportunity to complete an exchange. Because if you can just come to us and say, it's not going to work. I want my money back. And we give it to you. That's giving you constructive receipt. And then all of our exchangers are at risk. So here's when you can get your money back. If you don't turn in a 45-day list, you have nothing to purchase after day 45. So you can get your money back immediately. If you're after day 45, you have a list in place, but you've purchased every property on the list, then again, there's no longer the opportunity to complete an exchange. So you can get your money back right then. But as you found, if you have properties on your list and you're past day 45, even if you're not going to purchase them, then we have to hold the money all the way until day 180. Which is a it very turned sad out thing. actually to be a, a good thing for us because then it we didn't have to pay the taxes that calendar year because you held the money until the next year, so it gave us bought us some time. That's to exactly out right. What we we're going to do, and actually, it's kind of funny. We will have a handful of clients that will start ten thirty one exchanges between November seventeenth and December thirty first every year. They have no intention of completing a ten thirty one exchange. They just want to defer the tax until a year and a half later. Interesting. That's fascinating. So we actually fell into that loophole, I guess. <laughs> you guys got the genius badge there without we go. even having to be genius. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Awesome. Okay. So you've sort of stumbled into this and you started doing some 1031 exchanges for people. And over the last few years, it seems your business has exploded. So tell us a little bit about how you work with people now. I assume it's a lot of people that are doing exchanges and Tell us a little bit of what you're seeing out there. Sure. So the 1031 exchange, kind of when you boil it all down, is about nine-tenths strategy and consulting and one-tenth documents and paperwork. Anybody can do paperwork. We've got an operations team that does paperwork, but it's the strategy of how you use them and all the different possibilities that really make them work. And so that's where we have made our focus in education because- The best exchanger, the best investor is going to be the one that has the most knowledge and knows how to use it. I can know everything. You can know nothing. But unless we somehow make that transfer, that leaves me having to make decisions for you. And that's a really bad plan because my wife will tell you, sometimes I'm not a great decision maker. You will make the best decisions for yourself. And so it's in that education. And then what happens then is that over year, over the years, typically people don't hold real estate forever. So they, I tell people the scariest 1031 you'll ever do is your first one. And then you'll come back two years later, Dave, I'm ready to do another one. No must, no fuss. And that's really how it works. And that's so crazy because we get to work with these people that have figured out how to put that tool in their toolkit and pull it out whenever they need it. So it's really been gratifying. It's now, can you believe this 23 years that I've been doing this? Wow. wow. So you must have started when you were like two years old. <laughs> <laughs> record that. I want to send that to all my kids. So Dave, I've heard that there's talk of the 1031 exchange going away. Is there any truth to that? Interestingly enough, this segues right into how old I am, but every president that I have been under during this has at one time or another talked about getting away with 1031. Reason? Because Congress never met a tax they didn't like. They never saw one of your dollars that they wouldn't like better if it was their dollars. Every one of them. The only president that ever truly monkeyed with it, and this is really counterintuitive, who would you think it was? 
Any ideas? Trump? I don't know. It was. I yeah, gave you the hint with counterintuitive. Like, right? He would be the one that... The surprise... Strange, was- right? <laughs> because 1031 used to be investment real estate for investment real estate for personal property. So you could exchange restaurant equipment for restaurant equipment or heavy like road graders or, and this is where it came from, airplanes. Who owns a business airplane? President Trump, former President Trump. But what did he trade it for? He took away the opportunity to do 1031 exchanges for personal property. And in exchange, he gave you guys the gift of a lifetime, bonus depreciation. So instead of having to 1031 his jet, he probably just did a cost segregation, bonus depreciated it. He didn't have to do a 1031. It was obviously to his benefit if that's what happened, right? Well, what a gift to you guys. But that's the only president that wanted that's ever done anything. President Biden talked about it. It was it everybody scared. But at the end of the day, there's a realization that's backed up by numbers that says that the amount of money that you get in capital gains tax, which is at a lower rate, is so small compared to the amount of money that the IRS receives in ordinary income tax to real estate agents getting commissions, to appraisers doing appraisals, to title companies selling title insurance, to painters prepping a property for sale and purchase. All of these industries depend on velocity and movement. And that's what the 1031 exchange has existed for 100 years to do, to make the number of transactions increase so that each dollar is working harder rather than just printing more dollars. So 1031, not going anywhere. Don't feel like it's- No, as as a matter of fact, there was a resounding vote in the Senate, which we know is 50-50, right? Red and blue. So can they agree on anything? (laughs) I don't know. But there was a unanimous vote in the last budget that was to leave 1031 alone. Oh, good. Not going anywhere. We'll get back to our conversation with Dave in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day. Because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com invest. 
And now back to our chat with Dave Foster. All right. Well, there you go. For all the listeners out there who are thinking about doing a 1031 exchange, you don't have to worry. That was a big thing that was pretty scary if they took that away. I mean, it would just erase so much of a key component of why people invest in real estate and how they're able to build and grow their wealth so quickly is from the 1031 exchange. So if that disappeared, wow change the landscape. By the way, that reminds me, you can throw away the resume that I submitted when I thought that I was going to lose my job. Yeah, (laughs) that too. All right. Well, I wanted to ask, so a lot of our investors who come to us, come to us with this question. I don't even know how many times we've gotten this over the years since we've been around for the last five years or so, is around wanting to sell a, a piece of property. Particularly, we get this from investors who live in California. And over the last five years, or even when I first got into this five years ago, they're like, look, in the last three years alone, I've gained so much equity in my home, sometimes in the million dollar range plus, right? And they want to be able to take that money and invest it into our deals, into our multifamily syndication deals that we do as a limited partner. But as we all know here, that's not necessarily something that's possible. And so talk to us a little bit about that. What options do investors have when they have a bunch of equity in their home and they want to be able to translate that into an LP position in a multifamily deal What are their options? It actually, it also follows the normal life cycle of a real estate investor because we all start out with a lot of energy and more brawn than brains. But as we grow older and older, time becomes more precious. Our energy wanes. We're looking to do more other things. And so the lure of passive real estate investing is huge. And as your real estate portfolio grows, the last thing you want to do is liquidate and then move it into stocks or equities, which are passive, because when you do all that benefit of the tax you've built up over the years, you lose. So it's not an uncommon question at all. And we see it a ton. The problem is, you kind of alluded to it, is that the 1031 exchange has to be a sale of real estate followed by the purchase of actual investment real estate. And most syndications are set up so that what you buy is not real estate itself. You're buying a membership interest in an entity that owns real estate. So you don't actually own the real estate, so it doesn't qualify as a replacement property for 1031. So that's always been this big hurdle to overcome. In some cases, it's been solved by a syndicator being able to sell a portion of the investment property to the actual 1031 investor. But those are complex, generally take a pretty big ticket item to do. And very, very, very few of them can do it. So it's always been problematic. There's alternatives that are passive, but generally syndications typically seem to offer the best return. So how can they do it? Well, there's a couple different ways that will all work. First of all, is this concept called a lazy 1031. Have you guys used that con- that term with your investors yet? Okay. Yeah. A lazy 1031, which kind of defines me, I guess. But anyways, <laughs> a lazy 1031 is where you don't do a 1031 exchange. You sell your property and you incur the tax. You don't have to pay that tax. But the syndication that you invest in does a cost segregation and bonus depreciation allowance so that although you've got to pay tax on your profits, it's offset by the additional depreciation you get with your investment in the syndication. 
So you kind of come out neutral. Well, that's not bad. The problem with these is that they just kick that can down the road a little more. And now when the syndication sells, again, you're not selling real estate. You're selling a membership interest in an entity that owns real estate. So at that point in time, when the syndication sells, you're going to have to recapture all of that depreciation. And since that depreciation also went to cover all of that capital gain, you're in as bad a position as you were before. So that's the problem there. Can it work? Absolutely. And if you can keep finding syndications that will do that, then that'll work for you. My problem, why I don't like them is for my own personal use, is that my goal in depreciation is I want to build up as much as I can that's available, that's suspended and unused. And then when I start tapping into my 401ks and IRAs, that's what I want to offset with depreciation so that in my retirement, I can avoid tax forever. So, but the lazy 1031, not a bad idea. And another answer that a lot of our clients are doing that's much, and I think is much better because it lets them keep their foot in both pools is to continue to 1031 exchange into positions where they have high equity. So they sell a California house that has for a million dollars, they only owe a couple hundred thousand. That's actually a pretty common scenario. So they would go and they would buy a couple different properties. They would go buy an $800,000 property for cash using their 1031 exchange. And then they would use, well, maybe 700,000. They use the other 100,000 and they go leverage to buy another investment property. So at the end of the 1031, they own one property free and clear. They own another property with maximum leverage. What's good about that? Well, they continue to defer tax. They also own a property that's free and clear and protected from a downturn. They also have a property where they're getting income off of their leverage. So they're getting the arbitrage of their loan. That's a good thing. Here's the best thing for a syndication. They have a free and clear property that if they want to, they can do a cash out refinance of and use the cash out refinance to invest in the syndication. So they still have a cash flowing real estate investment and they took the tax-free refinance and used that to invest in the syndication. That's kind of like a trifecta, isn't it? You get to double dip. That's exactly right. And so when you do that, that ever-loving internal rate of return analysis, it just jumps through the roof because you've got sources of income coming from all different angles. It's interesting. I'm surprised that there isn't some kind of restriction around doing that. Like something that says that if you were to buy a property in all cash, that you can't then turn around and go do a cash out refi to invest. It would seem like they would do that because it seems like a pretty obvious loophole to be able to accomplish that. It does. But when you look at what it is in its face, legally, it cannot be touched. Now, if you do a refinance right before a sale, the IRS has and will question that because they can view that as you taking profit because you're, you did a refinance and now you owe this money. Now you're taking the cash and they look at that as taking profit. But when you do it after a 1031, you're not taking your own money, are you? What you're doing is borrowing money secured by the equity in the property. There's no way that borrowed money is ever taxable. And so that's why The joke in our industry used to be, how long do you have to wait? And it was long enough to put one pen down and pick up the other one. (laughs) So it's a great app because of that double dipping that it allows you to do. There's one other thing, if I can take just a moment, because we were talking about right at the beginning of this show, one of the things that we're starting to see 
are syndicators who are actually 1031ing their own projects. So you have 15 or 20 investors. They're all a part of your LP. When you sell that property, if you have lined up your next project so that you can do a 1031 exchange, all of your investors simply go forward with you because it is the LP that's doing the 1031. So they simply leave their money in. If any of them want to be bought out, then you've got all sorts of options where you can take some cash and buy them out and do a partial exchange. Other investors can buy their membership out. A bunch of different ways to skim that gap. But the point is that by having the LP do the syndication, the LP gets to defer tax, gets to put that into new acquisition. So you make more money. Your investors get to simply transition without paying tax and without recapturing depreciation. And you can go to the next one or the next two and do the same thing all over again. So there's some ways to do it, but it takes a little bit of planning. Does the 1031 exchange for syndications work the same as it does an individual who's looking to 1031? It absolutely does. It's the exact same thing. And the reason is one of the rules we didn't even talk about, Danny, that the taxpayer for the old property has to be the taxpayer for the new property. So if it's an individual, the individual needs to be the same. If it's an LLC, it's the LLC that's going to take title to the new one. So if it's an LP syndication, that syndication has to take title to the new property in the same way. Very, very tricky. It's a tricky thing to do even as an individual who's looking to buy real estate within a short time frame. Even trickier, I feel like, for syndicators to identify the property. Things have to line up almost just right. We've been fortunate to have a couple of our properties 1031 exchange over the years, but the timing is just finding the deal, making sure the deal works, raising the money, and making sure that you can close within that time period is always a tricky thing to do. Lots of benefits. That's when you may go back and revisit the reverse exchange. Right. Because that lets you line up that new project before you sell your old one. And is the cost, you mentioned an eight to $10,000 fee to do the reverse. How does that number fluctuate? Is it on a, the purchase price of the property or is it a flat fee that a syndicator would pay? Reverse exchanges by and large in the industry are simply structured according to the work that goes into them. With regular exchanges, those are a function of price point to a certain extent because you're holding proceeds. And so you're having to keep those proceeds safe. You've got insurances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But by and large, the most expensive 1031s I've seen are 5000 bucks, And like I said, generally for a million dollar or less sale, they come in less than that for most QIs. So a regular exchange, no big deal at all. And when you're talking millions of dollars in a reverse exchange, that's pretty noise level too. When you stop and think that while we own the new property, you're getting the income. While you still own your old property, you're getting the income. So again, Annie, it's another one of those double dipping situations for a period of six months. Yeah. And then are you able to speak to a DST and what that is? And if that's a vehicle that someone might be able to use to invest into syndications? To a certain extent, I can speak to that. DSTs stand for Delaware Statutory Trust, which is nothing magical. It's just a form of trust that happens to originate in Delaware. So it's just like an LLC or an LP or whatever. It's a certain type of trust that is formed in the state of Delaware. It has the magic sauce, though, of being blessed by the IRS as a 1031 replacement property back in 2004. I think it was 2004. It was specifically blessed for that. So you can sell 
a single family rental in Akron, Ohio, and buy a TST that is a Amazon distribution center in Boston, Texas. Now, you're not actually buying the real estate itself. You're buying a membership interest in the trust. But because the IRS has blessed that, that's the only form that that works. So you're selling real real estate. You're buying a membership interest in a trust, but it still qualifies for 1031. Makes sense? Yeah. So they can be really good. And there's a whole cottage industry of DSTs out there because they're actually at its root an SEC product. So any broker dealer with the right SEC license mm-hmm. can sell DSTs. The problem is, as you guys know, not everybody who is a good stockbroker understands real estate. Not every real estate professional who knows real estate understands stocks and DSTs. So when you're looking for DST as part of a 1031 or as a supplement in your real estate portfolio, go find someone who's both. Yeah. It's an interesting tool for investors to think about. Unfortunately, not something that we've been able to introduce into our syndications and allow them in our deals, but it's an interesting alternative avenue, potentially with the right partners. So as an intermediary, are you ever able to find investment opportunities? Let's say you have an investor who's like, hey, I've got could even be upwards of $5 million. Maybe they're, they're 1031ing a private deal of their own that maybe is family owned. Do you ever assist them in finding investment opportunities? Or if there's anyone out there who's listening who says, hey, I have this money, I need to identify this property, ah, freaking out, what do I do? Do you ever assist investors in identifying those? Yeah, the IRS is very, very strict in requiring that the QI for the 1031 be an unrelated third party in every shape of the word. So I cannot have a business or family relationship with a client doing a 1031. As you can imagine, I'm kind of like, do you guys remember the far side cartoons? Yes. Do you remember that one where the cheetahs are sitting up on the hill and they've got dinner napkins wrapped around their necks (laughs) and they're looking down at this lake full of zebras and and the title was what? Watering Holes of the Serengeti. (laughs) That's kind of what we are because people come to us. Yeah. From all walks of life, from all locations, realtors, brokers, investors, and they're all wanting to do something special. So the thing that I have loved is being able, when someone says, Dave, I want to invest in Sarasota, Florida. Got anybody I can talk to? And we just go to the database. Oh yeah, we've done exchanges with this person. This person attended one of our classes. So we can introduce people, but we have to be very, very careful. If you are looking at a QI that will also sell you investments, that's illegal. Oh. End of story. Oh, okay. Well, didn't know that. Well, then there you go. Good to know. Good to know for any investor out there who tells you that probably want to stay away. So this is really interesting, right? As we're talking about sort of these different strategies and ways to invest in syndications, you had mentioned earlier that probably 80, 90% of what you do is strategy, right? Any qualified intermediary is around strategy and about 10% is transaction. And so for anyone who's out there listening, take away the information that we talked about today on the show with Dave, because it can mean the difference working with somebody who's got the knowledge and the understanding of how to use the tools that are available can mean the difference between saving a lot of money and not saving a lot of money through these 1031 exchanges and finding ways to make deals work. As we just talked about, we ran through a couple of different ways to get into syndications. And if that is your goal, make sure that the group that you're working with has the information, has the tools, and has the strategies. So, I mean, it's become very clear.
clear to me now. I have not done a 1031 exchange personally myself. My family has over the years, but this is the thing. As you're moving from one property to the next, make sure that you vet your qualified intermediary and ask them these questions and see the kinds of responses and the strategy around how they're going to help you achieve whatever it is that your goals are. Because if they don't, what you don't want is for some group to represent 90% of the transaction stuff and they can get the job done. And then they have 10% of the strategy that's you might miss an opportunity. So was so many great tips. I know I will definitely refer back to this podcast episode whenever the time may come for me to 1031 outside of some of my properties. And then definitely would be reaching out to you, Dave, to chat more about these strategies that we're talking about. So thank you. Yes, such good information. We have not done a show on 1031 exchanges ever, which I can't even believe we haven't. So I was super excited. My goodness. And we just scratched the surface today. Oh my gosh. Yes. As we always do, I feel like on these podcasts, I always say at the end, like we could sit here and go on forever because there's so much to talk about. But we're going to move into the last part of our show, the Life and Money Show Spotlight Round, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is around your life and money, Dave. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? Hey, by the way, full disclosure, I know that you guys told me these questions before, but I've got the memory of a golden retriever. So I totally have forgotten what's one thing that I'm doing right now to live a meaningful life. Life is nothing if it's all about you. So we are intentionally pouring time, which is our most precious asset, but also dollars into others. I just think a life of giving is a life well lived. So good. I think Tony Robbins also has that comment. Anytime I'm feeling sort of like lost and wondering what I should do, the secret to living is giving is what he says. And I find that to be- It's for Tony Robbins. Yeah. Yeah, I won't tell him, Dave. It's okay. I won't tell him his quote, but uh, he got it for me. What are you talking about? Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, but so good. I think when you find your way back to giving, that you suddenly feel alive. So much of what we love to do here at Good Egg as well. Love that. All right. Second question is around others' life and money. So. Outside of the million hacks that you just gave us on the podcast today, what is one life or money hack that you can share that'll make an impact in others' lives right now? There are two books I want to recommend, and these have just been transformational for me. They're both by the same author, Richard Marbury. And the first one is called Whatever Happened to Penny Candy? Whatever Happened to Penny Candy? It's written at like an eighth grade level, which is perfect for me. It totally gives the best explanation of inflation, its causes, and the opportunities that come from inflationary periods that I've ever read. So whatever happened to Penny Candy, because as we're well aware from everything we hear, we're kind of in a period of inflation. So understanding it and knowing how to deal with it is huge. Richard Marbury, but here's the hack that goes along with that. His second book was called The Clipper Ship Strategy. And it deals around a very short, strangely enough, 18-month period of time out in your neck of the woods where the clipper ships were running from San Francisco down to the Orient. And in that 18-month period of time, there were more millions of dollars that transferred hands and more fortunes were made than just about any other time. The point of the book is go find where the government is investing dollars and invest there. How do we apply that? I'm looking at military bases 
And when I see investment in military expenditures in a certain region for a certain part of the military, maybe it's an air base in Wichita Falls, maybe it's a veterans hospital in Northeast Kansas, where the government is pouring dollars, go invest there because it's called cones of investment. And those cones will spill out to you as an investor in the regions. I will have to go check out both of those books. So relevant with to where we are at right now. I think there's probably a lot of investors out there that would be interested in that as well. It's such a strange and unique time to be a real estate investor or investor in general. For me anyway, I think there's a lot of questions out there about what's coming down the pipeline. So great suggestions. Love both of those. All right. Well, last question is around life and money in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place. You ever throwing a pebble into a lake and it makes a little ripple right around the pebble? And then what happens? It spreads out. If you want to change the world, change your home first. And so we invest in our family and our children, time and love, not because we're selfish, but because we want them to then transform their neck of the woods. So we start in our home and we go to our neighborhood and then we branch out from there. We keep it small. We keep it local and we let the ripples grow. Go find someone that you know and take dinner to them when they've got the flu. Mm -hmm. I love it. People think it's such small things, but they make a world of difference. And investing in yourself, your family, your community, that's where it all starts. And if everybody could just do that, I agree, the world would be a much, much better place. So Dave, you've shared so many great insights, but like you said, it's just scratching the surface. So I know there are listeners out there who are probably considering a 1031 exchange or want to learn more. So tell them what's the best place that they can go. Well, the nice thing is you'll never get tired of my voice because at our website, the1031investor.com, we've got like a 33-part YouTube series on every conceivable aspect of these things, articles, calculators, a way to link to us to get consultation. And that's what it's all about. Go start learning and you'll find us there, the1031investor.com. Dave Foster, Qualified Intermediary and founder of The 1031 Investor. Dave, thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom and your insights with us and our listeners today. You guys are awesome. Thank you. You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations. 